Hello, Hub listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each and every Friday, I'm joined on this program by The Hub's Editor-at-Large, Sean Spear. Sean, did you survive your epic uh, snake bliskin escape from New York (laughs) to return to your Canadian uh, hinterland uh, properties uh, for a lovely Christmas with your family? Yeah, we had a great Christmas. Thanks for asking. Um, amongst the gifts I came back with, though, is a, a bit of a cold. Uh, how, how about you? How was uh, how was Christmas for you and your family? Yeah, virus free, uh, sun free, snow free. So <laughs> not quite sure what that all adds up to. It was great to have a little downtime, but looking forward to getting the hub spinning up at full speed as of Monday. But as we start out our first hub roundtable of 2024, we've got to begin with the Claudine Gay resignation at Harvard and uh, just the debate around the debate. There's so many fascinating dimensions to this. Um, what's your key takeaway, Sean? Why in the end uh, have we seen this slow motion train wreck at Harvard that arguably culminated in a conclusion, the resignation of President Claudine Gay, that to many of us, at least to me, seemed almost inevitable from the first plagiarism allegation onwards? Yeah. You know, one thing I've been thinking a lot about, Roger, is um, the extent to which these kind of big political moments tend to produce a lot of collateral damage. Uh, Think, for instance, of the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa a couple of years ago. You know, I think you could argue that it unlocked, uh, um, at least indirectly, ultimately, the demise of Aaron O'Toole as the Conservative Party leader and Jason Kenney as the premier of Alberta. And I think when we look back on 2023, Hamas attacks against Israel and the ensuing conflict has placed so much scrutiny on university campuses in a way that they haven't faced scrutiny in a long time. Um, And I think a lot of people are being turned off um, by what they're discovering. So there'll be a lot of discussion in the coming days. In fact, the outgoing president of Harvard is even in the pages of the New York Times today, sort of with a degree of revisionist history, trying to manage the narrative of her departure. Um, And so there'll be a lot of focus on sort of plagiarism narrowly, but it seems to me the bigger issue at play here is the extent to which a lot of resources and focus and attention and energy on university campuses is being dedicated to ideological projects, not the pursuit of truth. And um, and it seems to me uh, for for Claudine Gay herself, um, you know, setting aside the plagiarism, her scholarship seem to be motivated by a set of precepts about identity and race and gender and all the rest, which just seems to be, at, at, to a, a large extent, a kind of a stand-in for a lot of what's happening on university campuses this uh, these days. So I, I guess it's a very long way of saying, you know, Hamas didn't intend to turn cause us to turn our focus on on university campuses, but I think that's a major consequence of what's happened over the past few months. Yeah, reverberations, knock-on effects. It's certainly one of them. A couple of quick observations. One, I thought it it was kind of delicious how um, Harvard, especially in Claudine Gay's resignation letter, tries to play up um, the idea here that this is about a 
issues of race and discrimination against her as a black woman. And I have no doubt that she was probably the subject of death threats and horrible uh, racial and other attacks. But the reality is that her resignation was brought about by repeated instances of plagiarism that would have violated Harvard's own rules and regulations as they're imposed on students. And what's interesting is the university in its letter and and her letter really make no reference to the plagiarism. Um, and it's just kind of funny because it, it's a classic, like the emperor has no clothes. It's like the reason she resigned is she lost credibility as an academic and a scholar and a leader because of decisions that she made over the course of, you're right, a pretty light uh, L-I-T-E, you know, academic career of research and, and scholarship. And, and then for elements of the kind of Harvard-friendly media to somehow blame this on, quote, right-wing media. No, this is journalism. These outlets were doing exactly what you know, the best of journalism should be, which is holding the powerful to account. And, you know, the Washington Free Beacon and others did a did a fantastic job of it. This to me should be winning Pulitzer Prizes, not being condemned as like right wing journalism. So I find these two things really interesting, Sean, because it suggests to me that I don't know what Harvard or Claudine Gay's ilk has really learned from this. They certainly publicly aren't acknowledging the reality of the scenario, which is, you know, serial episodes of plagiarism exposed by, you know, a vociferous, as it should be, uh, in free and independent press. Um, that's, to me, the takeaway. I, I agree with all that. I, I would just say, though, that Harvard can afford not to learn any lessons from this. It's a private institution with a big endowment. If it wants to go the path of becoming a sectarian institution that's, you know, shot through with all of the proverbial kind of progressive impulses, DEI on all the rest, they can withstand the kind of scrutiny and, and, and pressure and so on that they'll face. But for public universities in the United States and, and, and in Canada, um, I think this ought to be, a, a wake-up call. They have uh, become, um, you know, monoliths uh, with a kind of a ideological kind of homogeneity that I, I think represents a, a serious risk. It's a subject we've talked about on this podcast before, um, but at the time we were sort of talking about it prospectively. I think uh, her demise, um, you know, strikes me as a kind of shot across the bow to these organizations that they need to think seriously about the extent to which they are and um, have become so infused by these progressive ideas about identity politics and all the rest um, that they are kind of alienating large shares mm -hmm. of the population. If if they continue down that path, I think the the likelihood that we see cuts to funding, that we see, you know, politicians kind of increasingly intervening in, in, in university life, et cetera. I, I think that becomes uh, somewhat inevitable. I agree. I did. I think the other delicious part of this is that the plagiarism exposes a second dimension to your argument, which is really, a, a, I think, an important conversation we need to have about the utility of especially public universities that are publicly funded. Because the plagiarism to me is just, it's, it's a poison against the actual 
model of scholarship and, you know, thought creation and analysis, the contribution to human knowledge. It, it's, it's the antithesis of that. It's simply, it's academic bathwater. It's, you know, drinking and regurgitating, literally, literally word for word, you know, the papers and theories and ideas of other people. So there, there's two levels here that are functioning simultaneously, which I think, again, are a really big challenge for universities. One, there's, as you've just talked about, the kind of DEI kind of mania and the extent to which this is isolating the university from mainstream thinking and opinion and ideas. But then there's now a charge, I think, against the university as to its utility. Is it delivering public goods if it's shot through with auto-referential, endless recursive dialogues where, you know, people are just blatantly copying each other. And I'll say this, I think this is the tip of the iceberg. This is like drug interdiction. You know, when they say we seized 400 kilos of cocaine on the Mexican border, that's like 0.01% of the product that's going across. And I think we got to say this isn't endemic. I know for a fact it's endemic because researchers, especially the high profile ones like Claudine Gay, who have a lot of resources, they use students and others to do a lot of their grunt work for them. And I think there's only one way that you can surmise that she kept plagiarizing. I assume inadvertently, I'm going to assume unconsciously. I think it's because behind inside the black box, there was a process that she was using to create academic output. And I think that process was charitably researcher driven, uncharitably ghost, ghostwriter originated. I think there's gonna be a wonderful set of developments over the coming months as a whole bunch of organizations start to, news organizations and others start to run the papers of senior uh, academic leaders across North America through plagiarism checkers that exist online. And we are going to find hundreds, maybe thousands of cases of the Claudine Gays of this world across higher education, especially in the humanities. And this is going to cause a second crisis for these institutions, which will be a crisis of performance, a crisis of utility. They will be exposed, unfortunately, for sloppy, lazy scholarship, for rank and rampant plagiarism. That's my prediction. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. And I would just say uh, two things in response, both rooted in the idea that the, the, the reason that that type of culture can come to manifest itself is because it's it becomes a political enterprise. You know, the, the first point that the, the reason students and postdocs and others uh, would assume that they, that they ought to be doing this type of thing because they're bought into a political agenda, not a truth seeking agenda. Right. Um, the, the goal wasn't to uncover facts. It was to advance a set of propositions. To assemble arguments, to assemble arguments. Yeah. Precisely. Um, and then the second thing I'll say is uh, another reason why this managed to, to um, go unscrutinized for so long is because Claudine Gay um, represented a, a kind of set of political propositions for a community that saw her and her 
progress as key to advancing a broader political objective. She was doing very specialized scholarship on the representation of blacks in American political life. That's a very small research community. There is, you know, there's no doubt to me that people in that community knew what was going on. And in fact, we have we have evidence as such. We we have people in the aftermath of these of of these revelations coming out saying, "Yeah, I know, but uh, her progress and her voice at Harvard is just so important um, that we look the other way." I mean, it, it, it at its core, um, it's just to come back to the broader point that universities need to detach themselves from political propositions. They need to recommit themselves to the pursuit of truth. Um, I would just note in parentheses that Laurentian University in Sudbury just in the past few days has committed itself to no longer issuing institutional positions on global events. I think that's a good first step. Um, but uh, but we need to, you know, de-ideological, you know, de-politicize rather um, mm -hmm. the university institution because it's it's sent it in a, uh, led it in a really, I think, um, uh, problematic direction. Yeah. Yeah, so to sum up this portion of the program, one, universities, in addition to everything you just described, they're going to be under a lot of pressure to show public utility. Yes. In, a, in an era of scarce tax dollars, of rising borrowing costs, you know, I think a lot of this, this kind of academic research, which is frankly peripheral to, let's face it, a lot of the broader public and social interest in the country is going to be under intense pressure to justify itself. And second, if you are an academic, especially if you are an academic leader in your institution, boy, I hope you've been careful in how you've conducted your research and what you've written. Because right now, I suspect there's somebody out there running your papers through a plagiarism checker. And I, again, think this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we're going to find out over the weeks and months to come about a whole host of writers, thinkers, academics throughout higher learning uh, in North America. So we're continue to watch this at the hub. Let's take a quick break. When we're back on the other side, a couple of interesting economic data points that have emerged to kind of set up uh, the political debate in 2024. We'll unpack those for you right after this short break. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. Welcome back to the Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our editor at large. Sean, the uh, BC Business Council, a great group out west, uh, came out with a, a few uh, kind of interesting little da data points as we wrapped up 2023 and now start 2024 that caught our attention. It plays into, I think, a growing concern we have here at the Hub about uh, declining Canadian economic performance and the impact that this is having, the real urgent impact this is having on living standards, the sense of optimism, dynamism in the country. Why don't you give those uh, top two 
data points to us now, and then let's talk about them. Let's kick them around. Yeah, uh, credit to the BC Business Council and, and David Williams, who leads their research there, for challenging some of the claims made by government officials about Canada's relative position in the global economy and how we're we're all collectively doing. Um, just a couple of highlights from their research in the past uh, several weeks. First, we headed into the into the pandemic fourth in the OECD in terms of uh, GDP per capita growth in the, in the previous five years. Since the pandemic, Roger, we're now one of only eight OECD members who, who are facing lower GDP per capita than they had going into the pandemic. And, and for individual Canadians, that amounts to about $1,000 less per person and $2,500 uh, less per household. Uh, they're estimating that Canada won't actually recover, uh, won't, that is, won't return to pre-pandemic uh, levels of GDP per capita until 2027, so after the next election. And then I'm afraid it doesn't get much better after that. Uh, between 2020 and 2060, Canada is projected to have the lowest uh, level of GDP, uh, GDP per capita growth in the OECD. So these are kind of secular trends um, that, uh, as we've talked about in a, in a previous episode of, of the roundtable, um, you know, don't necessarily disappear because inflation starts to to fall or interest rates start to fall. These are more fundamental trends rooted in some kind of structural challenges in Canada's economy. And it's not obvious to me um, that the government or, or even the opposition parties uh, are prepared to kind of reckon uh, with what this means for Canadian wealth and prosperity. Yeah, well, two takeaways. One, literally a lost decade. And when it comes to per capita GDP growth, so total economic output divided by population, it's basically... 2019 stalled. Uh, and let's hope we don't know what's going to happen between now and 2027. Uh, but that's a decade. Number two, Sean, you know, the the argument people push back against per capita GDP, they say, hey, you know, there's all kinds of distributional effects here. It's it's really, you know, the reason per capita GDP is increasing in the United States. And that's another thing to realize that as our per capita GDP is declining over this last decade, the United States, at least in the last year, had almost a 1.6% increase in growth in per capita GDP versus Canada's, which fell by more than 4%. So you, you have to understand the effects of the differential of a growing per capita GDP in the United States versus declining in Canada. But what's your what's your argument about why per capita GDP matters and why we shouldn't just say, well, those big bad Americans, it's a very unequal society and, you know, all kinds of people are making a ton of money there. And it's it's distorting this when you measure it on a per capita basis. We have a lower per capita of GDP, but oh, you know, Sean, we're just we're just, uh, we're fairer, we're more equitable. Um, you know the argument. Yeah, I've been thinking a little about that a, a, a lot in the, in the past couple of weeks. Um, and I intend to write about it for The Hub next week. So for listeners who are interested, uh, stay tuned. Um, I'm open to the argument that GDP per capita doesn't account for distributional effects. Distri all things being equal, distributional effects are something we ought to concern ourselves with. But we shouldn't fetishize them either, Rudyard, um, because a, a future of less inequality may just be a future in which we're all poor. I, I think of my own life in a way. Um, 
I grew up in Thunder Bay. Thunder Bay is more equal than, say, Toronto or more equal than, say, New York or whatever. Um, but I suspect the people there would be pleased to trade off more investment and, and job creation if it came with more inequality. Um, I, I think people are principally concerned about stagnation more than they are necessarily the kind of relative experience of people around them. And I, I think if you had to kind of get at the core of the Trudeau government's kind of theory of the case, I, I think that they have decided that all things being equal, they need to subordinate when it comes to instances when economic growth and redistribution or distributional considerations come into conflict, they always choose the latter. And this is the kind of outcome um, that that type of thinking can, can produce. Yeah, I, I think there's two things one, we have to remember about the United States is one, yes, there there is more economic inequality, but there's also with that economic inequality, there's dynamism. And it's partly a temperamental and attitudinal question for everybody. What kind of society do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a more equal society? There's lots of reasons why you might say, yeah, maybe, maybe that makes sense for me. But I think a lot of us would say, again, I'd rather, I'd rather bet on myself and think that I can thrive in a, in a more unequal society because I will find ways to make that dynamism work for me. It's a, basically, it's an argument about optimism versus, I think, complacency. And I think that perfectly describes the kind of governmental attitude in Canada vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the cultural attitude in the United States. Uh, too many of us, and it goes beyond government, it goes to a lot of individual Canadians, are more willing to, you know, have the bird in the hand as opposed to, you know, trying to reach for the, the bird in the bush. And, and I think that that's unfortunate. And we have to understand that, you know, government in a sense is reflecting that sentiment in Canada. There are many of us, many of our fellow citizens who do not want to bet on themselves, who would rather have a average life because of whatever set of circumstances they've lost confidence they've lost a sense of dynamism they've something something has fallen away and i think that's what's responsible for these numbers is yes we can talk about economics all day long and the productivity drivers and how we invest capital and foreign direct investment but at the end of the day what this country needs is it needs a leader somebody to come forward to like make the full-throated case for the strivers and thrivers and why those people should have some optimism about Canada and about their futures here. And then just one final point, because I think this is important. When we criticize the United States for its economic inequality, which we can, we also have to acknowledge that it is one of the most dynamic societies in terms of changes in wealth from one generation to the next. So from shirt sleeves to short sleeves is like a slogan of, you know, American capitalism. There's an incredible amount of wealth destruction that happens generationally. This is not a hereditary aristocracy. It's changed a bit over the last 50 years. And there are some of those tendencies now in America, but it's certainly not like 
other uh, other societies. There's a lot of new wealth that's created and wealth that's lost. And again, I think that just, again, goes back to my idea of dynamism versus stagnation. And that increasingly is the choice that one has vis-a-vis a future in Canada or the United States. Yeah, well, well said, Roger. The only thing I'd say in response is immigration complicates these discussions a, a little bit. And in fact, that's something I intend to unpack in my article on the subject next week. I'm talking to Mikhail Scuderud about the effects of immigration on GDP itself and then GDP per capita. Um, but but setting aside the kind of technical dynamics, you said what we need is a, a leader to make a full-throated case for a, a conception of Canada and its economy and society through the lens of the striver. I would say that the extent to which I'm optimistic that we can kind of break through the complacency, I think it incidentally it will be immigrants who, who are um, a major force behind that. There are there is you know, very few choices one can make in his or her life that is more dynamic, that is more an expression of striving than moving from one place to the other in search of not just opportunity for yourself, but often opportunity for subsequent generations. But Sean, uh, net, net immigration's gone up. Last year, we had you know record high levels, at least in recent Canadian history, of net immigration. And a lot of those... We know a lot of that net immigration is immigrants leaving Canada, having found this country expensive, sclerotic, um, a place where what they felt they were promised never materialized. Yes, we've certainly seen those stories. Um, but but I guess what I'm saying is if you're looking for a kind of political impetus to break out of the malaise that were that is really as you say is at the heart of the numbers that i outlined earlier and you were thinking where is that critical mass uh where's that demand going to come from you know it seems to me immigrants are as as likely a source as as any yeah. um oh i i agree i think temperamentally but my point is i i think leadership requires some some uh aggressiveness and vision like do you want a lost decade? Do you want stagnant per capita GDP for 10 years? Like we're getting to the point where, you know, it, we have to start thinking about bigger, bolder ideas. I don't want to say shock therapy yet, but it's getting there. Like, should we be thinking about a flat tax? Should we be thinking about some way in this country to stoke the animal spirits? Because our animal spirits are, are in a funk or in a deep, deep funk. And I think we need some more radical thinking to say, what the heck do we do to actually make people feel like there's a reason to work, that you can build businesses and build wealth and provide for your family and achieve a lifestyle and a living standard. Again, not everyone's going to do that because it's going to be competitive and there's going to be a bell curve and a distribution of performance across an environment. I get all that. But the fact is that there's lots of reasons in terms of high levels of taxation, high levels of regulation, high levels of bureaucracy, um, not even to try. That's yes. the point. Yes, yes, I, 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 I agree. I mean, think about it this way, Roger, not just in this last decade that you're talking about, but even the decade prior, what was the what was the kind of underlying? We had a preservationist kind of policy agenda, right? It was low interest rates tax uh, cash transfers all to basically sustain demand 
what we haven't seen, as you say, is that kind of bold supply side agenda to kind of unlock uh, investment and, and productivity and the kind of things that drive that don't just sort of preserve what we have, uh, which has really been the mentality behind so much of policy over the past decade or longer but really to sort of take the country to the next level. And so, yeah, I think all of the things that you mentioned ought to be on the table. Um, uh, eliminating foreign investment restrictions, uh, more ambitious tax reform, you know, um, finally stop talking about and do something about interprovincial trade barriers. Uh, um, you know, the, the list goes on and on. Um, and I, I think, I, I don't know if the Canadian public is ready for something like that, um, but I, I think that's what's needed if we want to, um, you know, make sure that over the next several decades we're not at the bottom of the list when it comes to the growth and living standards in the OECD. Yeah, because look, there, there's a as we talked about, there's a it's not nice, it's not comfortable to have this conversation, but there is a broad section in the public that that doesn't want to strive that is very comfortable and attuned with the idea of of having enough having something that's average um not taking probably undue risks um there is a broad cross-section that have bought into the idea of complacency i'm sure they don't like the idea of stagnation who could i'm not going to assign that to them but their complacency is leading to stagnation so it really is, yeah, I agree with you, Sean. I, I don't know, and maybe, in fact, I'm not particularly hopeful. I don't, you'd have to have a leader or a party or somebody who would be willing to take on that group and risk the ire, the wrath of that group, who will deploy all the usual arguments that you're creating American-style inequality, that you're, you know, gutting this the social social safety net, that you're, engaging in trickle-down economics, all these, you know, usual kind of tropes. But I don't know. Yeah, I, th I think in the absence of some kind of shock, I think we've gotten to that point now where the malaise is so pervasive in these numbers. And again, per capita GDP is not the be-all and end-all, but it is an important barometer. And if we don't hit 2019 levels until 2027, and the United States keeps growing, adding to per capita GDP each year. We're already 25% behind them. Our per capita GDP is roughly a quarter lower than theirs. We could be 50% or more uh, lower than the United States. Where do you think the talented people in this country are going to go? Where are the strivers and thrivers going to decide that their future lies? And then who's left? And the nation, the nation of complacency, the nation of the average, the nation of the, of, I guess, good enough, but not great. Boy, that is not a national slogan that's going to get you out of bed in the morning. We might have to call this episode, Liz Truss was right. Uh, because of course, this is, <laughs> these are the conclusions that she reached, right? Um, yeah. And the truth is, if you look at the data, um, the UK is with us in a lot of these yes. Uh, yes. In, in a lot of these instances. And so, yeah, one wonders for all of the mocking and all the rest, if she actually was the kind of leader that you're talking about um, that put forward a bold agenda. That worked out to... so well. <laughs> <laughs> she, I think she lasted less than lettuce, uh, than a head of yeah. lettuce. But but yeah, I, I think she, you know, if you were thinking charitably, she kind of reached these conclusions based on what she was seeing. And 
And maybe she went about it clumsily or whatever, um, but at least she was putting forward an agenda that was proportionate to the yeah. set of challenges that 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 faces our societies. Yeah. And look, this is in the future, and I think it's a distant one. But if you don't fix these things, then you are going to be looking. You're going to be looking, actively looking for a nut job like Mille to come in and really do the shock therapy. Um, so let's not go there. Uh, we do not want that. Uh, we can be rational about this, sane about it, effective about it. But boy, the strivers and thrivers in this country need a hand up. Um not a handout. They don't want that. But this, hopefully, I hope this will be part of the conversation in 2024. We're certainly going to try to keep it stoked and going at the hub. So listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Roundtable. Check out Sean's essay next week. We're back at our full publication schedule and pace uh, starting Monday the 8th. We've got our our uh, hub forum kicking off again for you. We've got all kinds of great commentary analysis and insights at www.thehub.ca. Grab your free membership now if you'd like to get the best of the hub each and every Saturday. You can do that again at www.thehub.ca. Have a terrific weekend. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, come on over to www.thehub.ca and check us out. You'll find all kinds of great commentary, analysis, and insights by our writers, including Sean Spear. While you're there, consider clicking on the Join button. This will take you to our complimentary membership offer. Put in your email and we will send you each Saturday a compilation of our best writing and commentary from the week that was. We really appreciate your support, and we also greatly appreciate the support of the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Foundation and the Maxine and Ira Gornowski Gluskin Foundation for making these podcasts possible. The Hub Roundtable is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. Thank you for listening.